Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. This episode is brought to you by Brooks. Calling all running nerds, Brooks has just dropped the Go 16, a sweet name for an even sweeter shoe. If you're looking for comfort for that morning jog or when you're hopping on that treadmill, look no further than the Go 16, which has a nitrogen-infused cushioning. That means it's nice, soft, and lightweight. So you got the comfort, but you don't sacrifice the speed. Turn those everyday miles into everyday endorphins and the better-than-ever Brooks Go 16. Click or tap the banner to learn more. At Walt Disney World Resort, magic is found in spontaneity. The unplanned, the unexpected. An inside joke born in the Haunted Mansion queue. A surprise stitch sighting in Tomorrowland. Watching fireworks from your room. These memories aren't made from predetermined plans, but manifested from simply being. Present and together in the most magical place. Find your moment at Walt Disney World Resort. Talk the Thrones. My name is Chris Ryan, and I am an editor at TheRinger.com. Joining me, as always, is Ringer senior staff writer Joanna Robinson, along with the only person who takes longer to walk across a room than Viserys Targaryen. It's <laughs> Mal. Uh, re, ru, fit. Hi. How's it going? Oh boy, guys, let's drain our cups to three strong hosts. Woo. Oh, what a great episode of uh, House of the Dragon we just got. A lot of stuff happened. We're going to break down all of it. Joanna, what was the most important thing that we saw in this eighth episode of season one? I feel like I know what other people's answer is going to be, so I'm going to zag, and I'm going to say it's how chaos broke out as soon as Viserys left dinner. Like, how that's the only thing holding all of this together, clearly. What do you think, Mel? Uh, That's my pick, too, actually, because I think all of the other picks are pretty deeply connected to that moment and what we saw. You know, if uh, our guy, Viserys the first Targaryen, has in fact taken his final breath, then if everything goes to shit the second he leaves the room, what happens when he leaves this mortal coil? That feels relevant. Also, the last thing that he did before tapping out is confuse his wife for his daughter and talk about the prince that was promised. Uh, a classic Not ideal. A classic Molly Rubin smuggle. That's the pick I thought you were going to well, do. They're all, they're all connected. You were yeah. like, I'm not going to pick the one that everybody's going to say, but I will say the one everybody's going to say. So yeah. just so everybody knows, we record these a little bit before the actual episode airs. So we have not seen scenes from next week. If it turns out that episode nine is Viserys' funeral, which we all expect it to be because what else could he contribute to this wonderful world we live in? Our guy is arced out. You know, obviously, <laughs> I think we all think that that was Viserys' death breath. But when the screen cuts to black, Chris, and you reach out and you call out to your long lost love. It's the pawing of the empty air for me. It's that, usually that feels, the end. That feels like a final moment. But Chris, you're ready for a, you're ready for a fake out? If you next still believe week, in Viserys? Viserys is like on FanDuel doing same game parlays <laughs> for a tournament. I, you know, I just fool me once. That's all I'm saying. I think it was like after episode three, I was like, so Viserys is dying. We should take that into account. Um, I want to get into everything here. We can do the recap really fast. And then I want to jump into that, to those dying words that Viserys had there. Uh, so in this episode, the sea snake has gotten himself an infection and is in failing health. Uh, the royalty of Westeros engage in the time-honored tradition of power-grabbing in the face of tragedy. Luke, the son of Harwin and Rhaenyra, but publicly the son of Laenor and Rhaenyra, is next in line for the Driftmark throne. But Corlys's brother, Vaemon, has something to say about that. The matter must go before the crown, which is actually Queen Allison at this point, since Viserys is basically just a satchel of dust. <laughs> Rhaenyra and Daemon, who BT-dubs recently unearthed some more dragon eggs, Visit KL to solidify Luke's claim to the Driftmark throne, and they find the old bag of bones Viserys 
barely able to get out of bed. The most important thing about these scenes, about this show and this entire universe that George R. R. Martin has created, is that you never count out the triarchy. They have a habit <laughs> of resurging at oh the worst God. possible moment. We Your have guys. never ever seen. I don't know what their political ideology is. I don't know what their goals are. The triarchy have made more appearances on this show than dragons in some ways. Viserys <laughs> managing to say when he can barely get out a single intelligible sentence, wait, we won that war years ago is one of the funniest things that just has like, ever no, happened on my television. Lord, four years ago, incredible. they started popping up again. <laughs> this is, I think, the funniest episode of House of the Dragon so far. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, big time. So what happens next is a massive game of musical driftmark chairs with Rhaenyra swearing to Rhaenys <laughs> that she didn't have Lanor killed, technically true, and offering her sons to Damon's and Lana's daughters as a blockbuster trade for the ages. The Hightowers <laughs> prefer to have Corliss's brother take over rather than Luke. There is a hearing of various petitioners where we find Otto sitting in the Iron Throne in the king's absence until Viserys comes out of the locker room like Willis Reed and slowly <laughs> makes his way to his rightful piece of furniture, the one that nicked him in the first place, giving him this lifelong debilitating leprosy infection. He says that the matter has already been settled. Vaiman loudly disagrees and calls Rhaenyra's sons bastards and Rhaenyra a whore. Uh, much to the delight of Damon, my favorite moment in this show so far is Damon being like, say it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so Damon chops his head off, uh, continuing the trend of unprosecuted knife crime in King's Landing. <laughs> Things settle down after the beheading in the throne room. Everyone gathers for dinner. Viserys makes what is basically a dying wish that the entire family start getting along. And Alicent and Rhaenyra kind of go along with it. Alicent and Rhaenyra finally hug it out. And it's really going well. Until one-eyed Aemon Targaryen stands up and makes a few double entendre-laden toasts, and it all goes off. That night, Viserys, thinking he's talking to his daughter, tells his wife about the Song of Ice and Fire, convincing her that her Aegon, a true piece of shit, is the person to unite the realm against the evil in the North. This will, I'm sure, cause no confusion going forward. Aegon takes a couple of last breaths as Alicent, doting wife that she is just beats it for away from him. And I, we assume Aegon is dead. That's my assumption. So Joe. Oh, Viserys. Viserys. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Aegon yeah, yeah. unfortunately still going strong. Aegon unfortunately <laughs> two, still visiting two, chamber maids everywhere. Yeah. Mm, two uh, Aegons now. Double right. the Aegon. Yeah. That's right. Because yeah. yeah. Damon and, and Rhaenyra have it in Aegon as well. So Joe. Yeah. I want to talk about the entirety of the next however many decades of conflict being kicked <laughs> off by an extremely high dying man confusing his wife for his daughter. Is this in the books? And because my big question was like, you know, in the beginning of this series, you guys were like, this is new to have Viserys telling Rhaenyra about the Song of Ice and Fire. So now multiple people know about this. What's going on here? Yeah, this is uh, obviously not in the book because the prophecy is not in the book as far as we know, like not overtly anyway. And um, I think we talked a lot last week about maybe the show putting a thumb on the scale for sympathy for the, the Blacks. And this feels like an evening of that scale because like whatever Allison does next, she's doing presumably under the misinterpretation that Viserys has asked her to put their uh, shitty son on the throne. Right. So she's honoring the dying wishes, we assume dying wishes, of, you know, the king. Can I just read to you, because I know you love it when we read passages from the book. I actually can do. I, just, I find them quite illuminating. <laughs> I just think it's really beautiful the way it's put in the book, right? Afterward, the king sent them away, pleading weariness and a tightness in his chest, then Viserys of House Targaryen, the first of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynar and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm, closed his eyes and went to sleep. He never woke. He was 52 years old, rough. Wait, and had, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and had, not 152, but 52 years old and had reigned over oh and had reigned over most of Westeros for 26 years. Then the storm broke and the dragons danced. Uh, one of the best lines in the whole 52? book. 52? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill's 52. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild stuff. Thank you, Joe. Well, that, that is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess my, I mean, like, I'm very, confu I, I'm not confused. I think this is really interesting. 
Well, yeah, it's it, well, it's a deeply added complication to the whole. Again, like the show has been enjoying adding these deeper complications to our understanding of, you know, who's who's in the right here. And I think what the show really wants us to be caught up in is that everyone is right from a certain point of view and everyone yes. is wrong from a certain point of view. And I do have questions about whether or not, Al, like both of you per our text seem to interpret this as uh, Alice that now understands the prophecy. I'm not no, sure. I don't, quite, I don't think so. Okay. I'm not sure it's quite yeah, that, no. but I think Alicent believes that Viserys' dying wish is that her Aegon son Aegon sit the throne. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think yeah. that's right. I think yeah. there's like a, Four percent chance, maybe let's say three percent chance that Allison actually actually leaves that conversation understanding the prophecy. I would say it's not impossible, just given that Viserys has drunkenly revealed to Allison in a prior episode of this television show that he is a dreamer and talked about the roles of dreaming in House Targaryen. It's possible that she left that conversation thinking about that, holding on to that, and is making a connection here. Like, oh, maybe he's actually talking about a, a prophetic dream here. We also know that I think this is a key distinction when we talk about this as a show invention or a show ad, a new reveal. That is specifically about Aegon the Conqueror having this dream and this dream and this prophecy fueling his conquest of Westeros. The prince that was promised well predates Aegon right, and right. is existing lore in the universe. So Viserys utters those words. He says the prince that was promised. And so I would just say it's not impossible that Alicent, who we know is like a diligent a student and studying texts and stuff like that, that that would ping something and that she could piece this together. I would say that it is infinitely more likely, though, that, and I think this is what we all believe, that she comes out of that on the heels of a little bit of a return to the state of peace, stating that she had felt yeah. uneasy about the subterfuge that was playing out, legitimately appalled by Aegon, say, to the point where she says to him, you are no son of mine, and then toasts Rhaenyra and says, you will make a fine queen, and we could talk later about how much of the, the toasts that they share are sincere and how much are about this, uh, this, this play acting to make peace, and maybe it's a combination, but that Alicent leaves that hearing that Viserys is saying in his final moments you're the one who has to ensure that the realm stays together by Aegon if everybody didn't have the same fucking name, folks, this wouldn't be an issue. But they do. Yeah. That Aegon, our kid, has to be the one on the throne. And the other thing that I think really reinforces that interpretation is in the, the Vayman succession petition sequence, when Viserys comes in, he says that the only person equipped to clarify Corliss's wishes is his wife, Rhaenys. And so this puts Alicent in a position now to say, from the king's own mouth... He has said that the only person who would be able to clarify a succession plan and desire is his wife. I'm telling you the last thing he said to me. I think I think at the very least, Allison's going to come out of this conflicted because I do believe in the sincerity of her, like wanting to make peace with Rhaenyra at that dinner. Like Allison and Rhaenyra seem the most sincere. Out I of also anyone believe at in her dinner. sincerity of being like my my son is no son yeah. of mine. Yeah, and my son's a piece like, of shit. Are we sure yeah. we want this guy to be king? Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, so now we have basically two different factions of this family who are in different ways aware of this prophecy. And it doesn't even matter how aware they are because now they're also... I think used we can still say... Let's just say that Alicent is not aware of the prophecy. I think that is the safer, clearer way to go. That she okay. just thinks that Viserys wants Aegon to be heir and has said, make this happen. And that her sense of duty and like adhering to a vow that guides her throughout everything we've seen so far would kick in again there and com complicate that that rekindled warmth with Rhaenyra, right? I, th I think it's like accurate to say both sides feel convinced that they have from the word of Viserys that their claim... Yes. Aegon or Rhaenyra That's, is yeah. the yes. only incorrect claim. And crucially, I would imagine, since Rhaenyra was like, I have to take my kids home. I'll come back on Dragonback in a bit. Viserys dies. There is this vacuum. There is like a lack of physical presence from Rhaenyra in King's Landing at a moment when, you know, they can install Aegon if that is so, so comes to pass. What I was curious about, Mal, is... Viserys took great pains to explain the importance of what he was sharing with Rhaenyra. And if I remember correctly, showed her the inscription on that dagger, right? Like, there is a degree of, like, 
could you say receipts that Rhaenyra has, like proof of purchase on this throne that she's like, look, this goes beyond just like chess, you know, chess moves of which family is in control. Like I'm supposed to stand up against this yet to be determined evil coming out of the North. Which is also like really tough for anybody in the North being like, I'm not the bad guy here. I'm like, <laughs> I guess that, that's that's a stark problem though. Yeah. Why don't you reach out? Let's talk about this. They're like yeah. further north, <laughs> higher. Not yeah, exactly. We're lower um, north. If Rhaenyra's looking for receipts, all she needs to say is, my father, the king, publicly declared me heir. You all bent the knee. He never changed his mind. And mere moments ago in the throne room, was advocating for my line and my children. How's that for receipts? Still, it's a good question. And I think it's the other reason that Joe and I feel pretty confident that Allison leaves that room saying, I I understand the wish of the king, not I understand Aegon the Conqueror, Aegon the Dragon's (laughs) secret prophecy, is because, you know, we've talked about this a lot, like the unreliable narrator nature of fire and blood. Not everything that we get in that text is the actual thing that happened. That's that's fine and good. I do think it's safe to say, though, that if widely and far across the land, in court, in King's Landing and beyond, Rhaenyra and Alicent were shouting out loud, there is a prophecy about saving the world from the apocalyptic winter, and I or my my child is the one who has to fend it off, that would have made it into the history books. So I just don't think that Rhaenyra is going to actually ever say this out loud. And I think if Alicent knows, she would have no choice. And so like, I think this will remain something that Rhaenyra guards pretty closely. I think we're probably going to see her tell Damon. That feels right. like we need to get more people in her confidence. But... I don't think that Rhaenyra to the receipts question could say, like, let me put this blade in the fire and show all of you what burden I'm inheriting. Because, like, actually, how does that help her? If she does that, then it's just then it just allows Alicent to say, yeah, and that's about my kid. And also, let me tell you about this other dream my husband told me about where he said he saw the conqueror's crown on his son. Like, I don't know that it helps her if she does that. Yeah, I think it's also important to, like, where is the dagger right now? It's with, like, Team Allison. Right, because the camera pans down to it. Yeah, Allison has the dagger, first of all. And secondly, um, I... I, (laughs) I would love a scene where Rhaenyra shoves it in the fire and Allison's like, who's to say you didn't just do that yesterday? Like, how do you prove that this is an ancient inscription, you know? So that's my, that leads me to my next question of what I thought was secretly the most fascinating part of this episode was a brief moment in the beginning when Damon and Rhaenyra are arriving and most of the Targaryen iconography has been stripped from King's Landing and replaced with that of the Faith of the Seven. And... To me, that would also suggest Allison's skepticism, I guess, about dreamers and prophecies and knives with inscriptions on them and all sorts of things that Rhaenyra might try to use for her claim because she's obviously trying to move things away from the traditional old Valyria way of seeing things. Am I right? I mean, it it would seem like her interior decoration would definitely... uh... Seem that way. Yeah. Uh, I did note that the Targaryen uh, fuck murals are still going strong in Viserys' room. Well, I mean, she's like, an art lover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but elsewhere, they're gone. So I feel like the last, like, orgy murals are in Viserys' room. And then once once he's dead, all bets are off. But um, I absolutely, Alicent is cloaking herself of the... the seven-point star that she's wearing ostentatiously. Like, all of that's there. But that feeds back into what Rhaenyra said last week about sort of, like, the, the the veil of her righteousness, that piety that she dresses herself in. Because, as Mallory has pointed out many times, like, when we theorize about this, like, ever since we saw a promo photo of Olivia Cook with that giant seven-point star on her, we're like, okay, is this going to be a religious war? Which it isn't necessarily in the book, but is that what they're building up for for Alicent? And then Mallory's pointing out, she's like, it's it's hard to be pi- on your, like, high horse of piety, Alicent, if you married your son to your daughter, which she right. did. Like, right. Aegon and Helena are married and have kids, as we find out in this episode. And so it's like, um, what it means is that... Alicent is pious maybe when it serves her. Politically uh, a, pious, yeah. This is a great Alison episode, I will say, for my, like, empathy for Alison. I felt for her in a lot in this episode, so I'm not trying to, like, paint her as an out-and-out villain at all. But I do think that piety is 
sometimes convenient for her when it's convenient, you know? Yeah. I, I also think it makes, not that she was in any way not a, a, a very clear threat before, but it like crystallizes the second they walk in how the nature of that threat has evolved and what, the, I think crucially, what the threat could look like moving forward. Because there are a couple things, right? There's, you see the seven-pointed star everywhere. Damon has that great line about, Alicent, I have no doubt it was an act of the purest mercy. But tell me, for the king's suffering, did the maesters also order the removal of Darkarian heraldry? <laughs> like, it's it's just incredible. And Rhaenyra says that she, it, she says it would be nice to be home, but she barely recognizes it. I love that Damon's sitting in that scene. It's like, dude, she's the queen and the other one is pregnant. Like, you should just get up and let her sit. Our guy man. is always either in a chair or leaning against a wall and I'm here he for it. It's lean. amazing. Loves but like, think back to season two of Game of Thrones and jo- Joffrey's uh, interior redesign of the throne room. When somebody is changing the seat of power, the red keep, to match their personal preference, like it is a sign that something fundamental has shifted about who is in power, who is in control. And I think like when we when we process how that would make Rhaenyra and Damon feel walking in or how it could potentially play out when they assess the threat that House Hightower poses in the future, it's a couple things. Like, I think that everything Joe said about that cloak of piousness is essential. House Hightower, though, has like a longstanding history with the faith of the seven, both seated in Old Town. The, 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 the faith is still centered in Old Town right now at this point in the timeline. So you walk in, you see the seven-pointed star in Allison's body, you see it all around you. It's like the faith could be a powerful ally for Allison at any point. And that's a huge, 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 huge risk for Rhaenyra. My Westerosi religious studies degree has expired, so I was oh, no. wondering if there was a. I quick, thought those were for life. No, you know, oh. it was it was kind of it was a University of Phoenix thing, so I don't think that it the, right. the degree really stuck. Got it. But the faith of the seven is there like an analog? Would you say for I mean our own human history that like they're trying to sort of say like it was it like the the Protestant Reformation like what what I would is. Say- Catholicism. Catholicism. And then like Targaryen's beliefs are more what like old world Bacchanalian kind of like we're superheroes and we can do what we want. There, it's tough because like so there are the old gods within Westeros, but right. the Targaryens basically believe themselves to be the gods is sort of my, you know, and, and it's been a constant shaky detente between the church and the Targaryens where the Targaryens have tried to say like, okay, we're conquering Westeros. This is the established church. Let's find a way to sort of get along and and pretend. This is why that scene with like young Rhaenyra, young Alicent in the Sept was so important at the beginning of the season, right? Because Alicent Oh, she's like, pray with me, right? Yeah, and Rhaenyra's like, how does one pray again? Because this Targaryen, like, I might be fluent in High Valyrian, but I know nothing about the church at all because this isn't what we believe in or what we do. We'll, We'll... will acknowledge the power of the church. And and then in some in some instances in Targaryen royal history, there's an open war with the church. And so it's it's a it's a really complicated relationship. Yeah. And like you have Alicent invoking the father and saying a prayer at dinner in addition to all of the iconography populating the Red Keep. And you have Rhaenyra and Damon six years prior getting married in Valyrian blood and binding ritual, right, not right. even in the light of the seven. So like I think the point about Aegon and Helena being a brother, sister, sibling, incestuous marriage and the hypocrisy of that, given Allison's personal feelings on those, uh, quote, queer customs of the Targaryens is, is germane. But also, she's in a position to basically do what Jaehaerys did when he agreed to the doctrine of exceptionalism with the faith and say, OK, we're abiding by the, the, the agreement that House Targaryen reached with the faith of the seven. So this one thing is all inside of a desire to adhere to the faith and inside of a desire to be aligned with the faith. Rhaenyra is not interested in that. And so if you were going to choose a side, you, the faith, choose us. And I think it's clear that Alicent is is trying to like, that that would be projected if you are walking in and seeing that.
This episode is brought to you by Brooks. Calling all running nerds, Brooks has just dropped the Go 16, a sweet name for an even sweeter shoe. If you're looking for comfort for that morning jog or when you're hopping on that treadmill, look no further than the Go 16, which has a nitrogen-infused cushioning. That means it's nice, soft, and lightweight. So you got the comfort, but you don't sacrifice the speed. Turn those everyday miles into everyday endorphins and the better than ever Brooks Go 16. Click or tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So, Joe, you brought up a really good point where... Allison has made a lot of compromises in the intervening years since she first fell out with Rhaenyra when they were essentially kids. And one of them is marrying her son and her daughter together. And another is giving the chambermaid the same tea that the maester gave Rhaenyra after her night, allegedly with Damon, but in reality with Kristen. Is this supposed to be suggestion that she's just a great political operator or is it that she's like slowly starting to lose her like moral center as she gets older? I like it's it was a really fascinating scene, right? Because they're not too subtly, like obviously echoing like the language of Me Too about like she's like, I believe you. But, you know, like there was it was obviously like trying to kind of push some buttons there. It gave me strong Siobhan Roy at the end of season two of Succession, yes. you yeah. know, that that harrowing conversation. It's also in its language meant to reflect a lot of the conversations we saw between Cersei and Sansa in early Game of Thrones. Like that is definitely there, her calling her sweetling and all this stuff like that. But unlike Cersei, I genuinely believe Allison does feel for this young girl. Um, and we see it in her. She's holding Aegon more accountable, I think, than Cersei ever held Joffrey in the next scene. Not not the greatest parenting move to scream at your misbehaving child and say, you are no son of mine. But I don't, I don't know that I read it as entirely hypocrisy, but I think it is um, really important to note the difference between her kids and Rhaenyra's kids. I noted and, them, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just, just a few slight differences, right? And, and like, how, like, uh, however much empathy we have for Al- Alicent, and I have plenty in this episode, I still also have to judge her if she's got a kid like Aegon, like, you know, and Aemond, like, you know, and, and whether that's just, like, it was tough for her to parent children that were born out of a marriage that was forced upon her with an old, like, decaying man, like, then I can find empathy for her there. But at the end of the day, like, Aegon is a monstrous kid, and that is reflective of of her and her parenting choices. And so um, I don't I don't know that I felt that that was... I, I, I was glad to see from Alicent some genuine empathy for this young girl, even as she's doing her duty, I suppose, which is covering up her son's um, absolute bullshit. What do you think, Mel? I I agree. I mean, I think that she seems to feel for Diana sincerely, even as she is then also intimidating her. I know you won't. Here's a bag of money. Here's this tea. Drink it. You must do what I say, which is horrifying. And then what does Allison actually say to Aegon as she is screaming at him? She says, think of the shame on your wife on me. How can you keep carrying on like this, especially on a day like today? So that doesn't mean she doesn't feel anything genuinely inside of her for Diana and feel horribly more broadly for what women are subjected to in the realm. I think that's very present here. But and I think when she's thinking about her daughter, about Helena, she's also thinking about it in those terms, like a woman who needs to be in a certain marriage because of what it means politically and for the path to power and how horrible that is now for the rest of that life, right? But also thinking about what Aegon has just done through the lens of the shame it would bring on the family and the way that it would complicate their ambition, like, that's awful. That's horrific. 
Well, no real, no real person involved, right? Again, to cite succession, right? Like this is a uh, not my belief, obviously, yeah, but this is the like going to be the ongoing belief of, um, and the, you know, this is in Fire and Blood. This idea that Aegon was just you know yeah. assaulting the maid servants around the the castle because he is, I don't know if you picked up, not a good dude, not yeah, not great, well, Aegon. Also, I so I wanted to ask about these kids because. And yeah. I, I, I'm sure that Ryan Connell and the creators and the and the show and the and the writers are doing this on purpose, where the Rhaenyra's children are ostracized because of being supposedly bastards with a capital B, and Allison's kids are just bastards. Like they're just like <laughs> these, like especially right. the sons and and Aemon. Yeah, not especially. not Helena. Helena's not fine. Helena. Yeah, yeah, she's cool. Um, she just wants Great to play with dinner spiders. Toast from Helena. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly, but. Aemond essentially restarts the civil war between these two families. You know what I mean? Like he gets up there and he has had a like miraculous growth spurt. First of all, just completely passing Aegon on the left in the yeah. height division. Definitely yeah. inherited Viserys's genes of aging 30 years for every three that <laughs> pass. So. I think notably is essentially Kristen Cole's equal in the training, right? And as as I puts the blade to his throat and is like, I got you on this one. So physically, obviously very able and clearly doesn't care about making, uh, first of all, certainly doesn't care about honoring his father's wishes about there being peace uh, and is got something driving him that's pretty dark and pretty disturbing. Can you, Mal, is there anything I need to know about the six years since we last saw Eamon say, I got a dragon. It was a fair trade. Right. And and now when he has apparently grown into the ideal stretch for 610, <laughs> stretching the court, you know, like able to crash the boards, oh, able to handle and pl- make plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's got it all. Um, c- couple things. One, my note for everyone involved at the dinner, maybe don't serve pig, given the pink dread and the traumatic childhood incident because as soon as the pig comes out and that was amazing yes. scene choreography of Viserys being carried out as the pig is being carried in and the way that Luke looks over the pig and smirks Luke. and laughs and just incites that rage in Aegon and of course Jace calling back to their shared youth everybody is just looking for one excuse to act and they don't even really need a real excuse right? Aemond so here's here's one one line from Fire and Blood that I think pretty well sums up the the growth spurt and the evolution here. Quote, Prince Aemon, despite the loss of his eye, had become a proficient and dangerous swordsman under the tutelage of Sir Kristen Cole, but remained a wild and willful child, hot tempered and unforgiving. That's kind of the essence of it. And that comes across here. And I think my one of my favorite moments in the episode that was like in the quieter, quicker Bucket, not the huge set pieces, which were incredible. When Vaymond with the House Hightower guards comes in and the doors open in the yard and everybody turns to look. This is after Aemond very creepily calls out to his nephews and asks if they want to train. We get an overhead shot of the yard. Everybody is turning toward the door to look at what's coming. What's Aemond doing? He's going to get another shield. Like this is got this guy's always readying for the fight. Always. The moment. It was almost super, it was spooky. So like, you know, Jace, little Jason Luke or taller Jason Luke, by the way, Harry, Harry Collette's the actor who's playing 16 year old Jace. Um, and I looked at that kid. I was like, I bet that kid was a Billy Elliot. And he was. was he? So yeah. Yeah. I was like, I feel like I can smell the Billy Elliots now Do, as they populate. Because I don't think that kid was a Billy Elliot. That kid was never a Billy yeah. Elliot. Uh, yeah. That kid. That's that's you and Mitchell. It's funny because um, I really he seems like, like he was in Gangs of London or something. Like it was not <laughs> Billy Elliot. He he and uh, the actress who played Helena were both in The Last Kingdom, the Netflix show. Um, but it's it's interesting because Tom Glenn Carney, who plays Aegon and I think it's Fia Sabin who plays Helena. I think they both look a lot like Olivia Coleman in the face. Um, a lot. And then you and Mitchell, who plays Aemon Targaryen, I think they cast him to look like Matt Smith. Because as you like might have seen as they sort of like, you see it's it's meant to be that the Team Greens has their own daemon now and it's Aemon Targaryen, yeah. right? And well, like the moment when they're staring each other. Yeah, down. they're squaring yeah. off at the end of the dinner or whatever. And but I, you, d- you know, yeah. in the, the rule of like king of the court, 
I, I in a basketball term, not in a, a royal family term, I did take note that Eamon is now on the same level as Kristen, who kicked yes. Damon's ass 10 years ago or tw- 16 years ago, whenever it was. And I love that sequence because like he's training with Kristen. Luke and Jace are sort of like, what's all this then? Walk up and then they, and they, and Eamon turns, they see the eye passion like, oh shit, that's Eamon. Oh fuck. Right. And they have this, like, they, they have this awful moment. And then Eamon never looks at them, is like fighting Kristen the whole time, wins the thing. And then like shoots his one eye over at them, like says cousins. And like, he knows that they're there and like has clocked them despite never like pausing to look at them. It is terrifying. Like this, this guy is always scanning the floor, the floor, Uh, like great court vision. (laughs) uh, Incredible stuff. And I think, I think what's important about, I mean, Eamon, we all agree, looks way older than the other kids, but I think it's important. This is another six year time jump. We get all new actors for the kids. Um, we don't know Mallory and I for certain, but I think doing math on what's left, I don't think we're going to do another major, major time jump. I think this is it. So these, like all these actors gathered at dinner here, these are our actors going forward, right? And what I love about like, I think Jace especially, our our, our Billy Elliot kid, is like that actor is like 18, 19, he, and he's supposed to be 16. He looks like a 16-year-old to me. So he looks like the kind of boy soldier that Jon Snow and Rob Stark were supposed to be. Kit Harrington and Richard Madden were like in their mid-20s when they were cast. And they never they never felt like children to me. But, but they Jace, never really, they kind of massaged that. They were like, yeah. these guys could be like warriors, but they're also supposed to be kids. And like, right. right. Yeah. And like, so when you, when you, th- when you, when Rob Stark leads a war at the beginning of Game of Thrones, this is a boy king. Like, this is the boy king of the North, right? And But Jace actually does feel like a boy. And so thinking of what, you know, whatever's to come as, you know, the dragon's dance, like, it's it's scary to think of these kids involved in all of that. Yeah, so. he's still, like, genuinely excited to run through the training yard. I was so struck by Luke, who is only supposed to be canonically a year younger than Jace, though seems... Like the gap much <laughs> feels a little bit bigger to me than the show. Yeah, he's like the it. It looks so much smaller, and that was such a like a moment that you can relate to when you're a, you're a kid. Everything seems huge to you, and you go back and you're like, "This is just a room." Oh, I'm taller than my locker now, and like it just does remind you how small they've been for all of this. And like, I don't think I was ever taller than my locker, but that's that's my costume. <laughs> yeah, Jace is just like trying to get better at his homework, like really frustrated Ooh, with himself yeah. that yeah. he can't learn High Valerian. And like, what is the 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 language that they're translating? What is it about? It's about the conquest. Like, it's about this fabled these fabled figures from House Targaryen's history and a war of might and strength. Like it's, I I agree with Joe. Like you really felt the youth there in a way that was helpful. And then it's like shocking when you swing to the other side and you hear when Helena comes in to the Allison Aegon scene and and, and Allison is, is, is confronting Aegon about Diana. Helena comes in and asks where Diana is and says she's supposed to dress the children. Like, not only have Elena and Aegon gotten married in the intervening time, they have kids now. Uh, so, like, you, I was surprised <laughs> Allison wasn't like, you know, Diana's not around, but you should use Talia. She's right here. You know, Talia. <laughs> oh, Talia, my God. always available, always <laughs> I'm ready. Really, I'm really glad you said that because that's the other thing. Like, Talia is the one who brings the moon tea, and then Talia is the one who goes to Masaria yeah. at the end. So, like, I want, I want, I want to get to Masaria. But I, I, you know, I did, I, I, we will get to them. Sorry, because she, I was like, is she just off this show now? Like, I wasn't really sure what was going on with that. But uh, we, she does pop up in this episode. Here's the thing I just wanted, like, more of like a broad conversation topic that I thought was kind of cool. One of the issues that I think I've had with the show over the course of the season has been how confined it is to the th- sort of chambers of power. Like, it hasn't really done a lot with the exception of the naming day feast where we're out in the forest and stuff like that. Yeah, we go to come some different lands. We go to Driftmark, we go to Dragonstone, we go to King's Landing. But for the most part, it's in these um, very powerful rooms. And I know that Game of Thrones did that as well, but it had a lot of like flea bottom and it had a lot of like, here we are with this army in the, in the field. And what I've sort of started to come to appreciate about what House of the Dragon is doing in that regard is that it is this sly commentary on what an illusion all these people's power is? Like, because you can lose or gain power 
due to a misunderstanding, due to mishearing something on someone's deathbed, due to the fact that you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say Corliss didn't really want it this way. Or even if he did, fuck Corliss, he's dead, which I want to talk about whether or not like that was the best way to handle that. So it's just been a really interesting thing, Joe, where I think that this show is more leaning into the ideas of what, like how thin the the thread is that binds people to power. Yeah. No, and I think that's really true. And I, I mean, that's one of the, we've talked about the many, many interpretations of everything Helena has ever said. And in last week's episode, one of the, you know, her, she was talking about hands moving wheels and threads, black threads, green threads. And I think one solid interpretation of that is, yeah, how tenuous all of this is on a, on a knife's edge, like how everything could go one way or another. And I think what really underlines that for me in this episode is Rhaenyra and Alicent in that moment at the end of the dinner when Rhaenyra, when Alicent's like, you just got here, stay, we're friends. And Rhaenyra's like, I got to drop the kids off in the Volkswagen, but I'll be back, you yeah. know? And I'm just but like- I'll take the sports car back. Yeah. I was like, stay, you know? It's like, there's constantly these, these almost moments, especially for these women who we've seen as go from the closest of friends as young girls to where they are now, where there's been so many moments where it's like, Almost reconciliation. Yeah, and even the fact that like Veyman is so outright defying Viserys in front of Viserys, in front of Viserys' entire court, and then in turn gets his head chopped off in front of the entire court and kind of nobody does anything. You know, it's it's all kind of like, this is just playing out. This is the theater of power that we're kind of involved in. But nobody nobody arrests Damon for chopping off Otto um, makes one very feeble. Oh, he's like un- 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 disarm that man. <laughs> yeah. um, Mostly because he's clearly afraid of of Damon. Uh, and, and where else slice next? Yeah. yeah. Just really quickly, Chris, I would just advise that next time you do a very public crime, you have a good quip ready because oh, Damon's yeah. saying he can keep his tongue. Was great. I think <laughs> it's the best defense he could have. Ah, God. Damn now, so the, the episode starts, and they're like, guys, the triarchy. And <laughs> someone, someone got Corliss. He's got blood fever, etc. And they're like, well, he should be here in three days. And Renice is like, cool. I'm going to leave and go to King's Landing. And we're going to have this discussion about whether or not, like, who's going to take over Driftmark, even though there's no death certificate on my husband. So what's going on here? Like Corliss, are do you? Do, I mean, is Corliss is fate still up in the air, or is this another great misunderstanding that shifts the balance of power? You know, Renice isn't at the dinner. That's true. On that tight timeline to get home, yeah, <laughs> and see uh, what Corliss's fate is. I I think this connects actually completely to the last question you just asked, Chris, about the illusion of power and how thin that line is because it's like the it's the 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 famous Varus quote right power resides where men believe it resides it's a trick it's a shadow on the wall so the second anybody has the opportunity to cast another shadow instead they will and that i think is like the the really especially given the conclusion with Viserys our guy I think that is like the key takeaway of this episode. Everything that's happening with Corliss and with House Valarian, with much love and respect to House Valarian, is a microcosm for what can then happen. Right. Preview. Scale. The coming attractions. Yeah. And like, exactly. And I think that that's why Viserys obviously enters the room in the first place, goes down to the throne room, which like, obviously we must talk about (laughs) because Rhaenyra comes to him in the dead of night and begs him to begs stand up for him her. To, yeah. to support her claim and her children because of this you have you have put this burden on me if you still believe show up but in the face of that challenge in the face of those petitions like what is what does he say he says i must admit my confusion yeah. <laughs> i do not understand why petitions are being heard over a, a settled succession you just then apply that to everything happening with house targaryen right like when when Vaymond has the gall to say to him, and this I think also connects to your Stepstones question, because like, how was that positioned initially earlier in the season? And more broadly, those conversations about like needing to respond to a challenge. You can't let anybody think that you're weak for a second. And so the gall 
of of screaming that the king has fucked up his own house but won't do the same to House Valarian, calling those kids a bat calling those kids bastards, screaming it when Viserys has sworn that if anybody did that, he would take out their tongues. Calling the heir to the Iron Throne a, a whore, whore. Yeah. in the throne room. In open court. Say yeah. it. Say it. <laughs> like go, on the go one, for it. Do dude, it. On the one hand, I'm <laughs> I was impressed that Viserys found the strength to stand and pull his dagger. But anything short of what Damon did would have been almost unfathomable in the face yeah. of that because it's just such an affront. And Renice, you know, wasn't like, oh gosh, my brother-in-law. She was just like, good, that guy's gone. Yeah, yeah. It feels like no love lost there, honestly. Yeah. Um, can, okay, can we talk about the long walk, by yeah, the please. way? So that was probably, in, in some ways, the set piece of the episode and in some ways the set piece of the season so far, Dragons Accepted was this moment where Viserys enters the throne room. Otto is feeling his oats sitting on the Iron Throne. And the show... The way he leans forward. <laughs> yeah. Oh and it, it, I think it goes from something kind of unintentionally funny to something quite quite beautiful and touching. So, Joe, yeah. what, what were your thoughts on that moment? I was like hooting with laughter and then I was openly sobbing, genuinely. <laughs> when when he drops the crown uh, in this like beautiful parallel of, you know, Damon and the Driftwood crown and all this sort of stuff. Like he drops the crown and Damon picks it up. He looks up and it's Damon. Like I, I you know, and then, and then I thought, I thought Patty Constantine was extraordinary and the VFX team extraordinary in this episode. I also thought Matt Smith was incredible in this episode. And so for the, the moment when he says, come on, I just like, that's, that's the height of this whole season for me, this complicated, constant complicated relationship between these two brothers, but how Damon has always been like, you can talk shit about my brother. I can talk shit about my brother, but, but nobody you else can't. Can. Like, I just wanted to be by his side, helping him. Like, that's all I ever, he, all he ever wanted was Viserys to say, come and be by my side and help me. And the fact that Rhaenyra said it to him last week was this like big moment where he's like, yeah, I just wanted to be your, your second. And, and like, when Viserys says in the first episode, I don't think Damon even, even really, like wants the throne. He doesn't want to do that. Like the actors have backed that up in every interview. They're like, yeah, Damon doesn't want the throne. Yeah. Like that's not what he wants. Like he wants maybe proximity to power, but he doesn't like he's not, you know, power hungry for the throne. And he genuinely loves his brother. And they've had conflict after conflict in that very room. You know, and so to have him show up at that moment, absolutely gutted me. And he had seemed sort of appalled by by Viserys in this episode up until this point. Like when Rhaenyra is like lovingly kind of doting on him when they first go into his sick room, like I felt like Damon was a little bit more like, let's get what we need out of this politically. Like let's let's inform him about certain things. I don't know. That that wasn't my take. Like for me, it was almost like hard for him to look at Viserys. Anytime he looked at him, it was difficult. He says brother when he first sees him. Right. When uh, Viserys brings up your favorite um, topic, the triarchy, and he's like, I thought we won that war. Yeah. Damon looks so embarrassed. Because he's, he's just like, sort of you like, just obviously have been like on like, milk oh, of the poppy for five you, years, right? And he, yeah. well, but he's also just like, I fucked that up. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I did that. I I got us into that. And and then I want to hear everything that Malice say about this. But I think the last thing I want to say about the long walk, as like funny and then poignant as it was, as great as... Patty Constantine's like body work was and all of that. We've talked a couple times about the various like important long walks that these characters have taken in this season. Rhaenyra covered in boar blood, Alicent in her green dress, Damon in the driftwood crown as he walks into the throne room. And so I just like these moments for all these major characters and what it means for them in terms of like, what does power look like? What kind of power is important to them? It's important to Viserys to do this walk on his own, wearing the crown, all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, whereas later he's brought in on a litter. I'm like, where was that litter? Like earlier, you know, but he needed to do it without the milk of the poppy on his own. Um, And the only person allowed to help him is Damon. And I just, I thought that was, I thought this was incredible. What did you think, Mal? Mallory Rubin? Yeah, this was my favorite moment of the season for, for all the reasons that you just said. I 
perhaps because I am a monster, perhaps this is because how everybody will respond to this moment. I, have to, I Exactly what you said, Joe, when the doors open and everybody turns, part of it is the comedy of seeing how someone like Otto Hightower reacts, right? The shock and the horror. I've been found out. I've been thwarted. But when we first see Patty of the Opera with that golden mask and then he waddles and hobbles forward, shuffle by shuffle, presumably missing toe by missing toe. This is why you shouldn't nail down furniture. In a different world, they could have just brought the throne to him uh, and no, reversed the axis, you know? Like Joe said, you know, he's people are coming and offer the King's Guard. They're coming. Oh, let me help. No. Eric. He, he had Sir Eric Cargill try. I thought we were going to do the whole pod about Sir Sir Eric and Sir that's, Eric. That's House of Bar level stuff, you know? I can't, I can't really weigh in on I that. I knew Chris was hyped to talk about that. And the way that we shifted in an instant from the, the, the awkward comedy of that, but also mixed in the whole time. Like it's not even a shift because you're, you're moved and you're touched and you're horrified and you're sad and you're laughing almost like the way you would at a funeral where it's like nervous laughter. Like you're embarrassed. You shouldn't be laughing, but you're like, oh my God, this is, they're really going for it. And when you see after the, the the crown falls, the hand first, and then the 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 you the moment where you see the hilt of the the the, the dragon egg, and like you know it's Damon, and it's just I like also broke down in tears. It was just so lovely, and that come on, and like Joe said, the number of scenes between them, very fraught, family defining, decades defining confrontations between them that took place in front of that throne, and the payoff here was so sublime. Like, this is just, this is the culmination of their relationship and their arcs. And the last thing we saw, granted it was six years ago, but last episode was, was Damon saying he needs nothing from Viserys, like rejecting the invitation to return. And this is, this is what they needed from each other that whole time. And like, I think Chris, to your question about like, what was Damon's response to seeing him? You know, even when, when, they first go in and see him in his sickbed. The way that Viserys is just like whisper breathing, wheezing out Damon's name. Like he is so moved emotionally to know that Damon is there. And then for, for Rhaenyra and Damon to present Viserys's namesake to him, like that was just so moving and really lovely and, and wonderful and sad. And it's like deeply tragic because this is the thing. We've been harsh on Viserys much of the season, rightly so. But whether you're watching the show or you're reading Fire and Blood, like the takeaways from Viserys are he hated dissension. Anytime he exiled Damon, he was ready to welcome him back. Like he and Rhaenyra would have a fight. She was the lo- the joy of his life. Like these are the people who are most important to him in the his world. His only child. <laughs> yeah, right. Tough. And the speech that he makes then at the dinner to them when he takes his mask off and it's it's this inversion of the Alicent Rhaenyra now they see you as you are moment mm. where he's using that idea of like let's see each other as we are and try to find understanding and cohesion and strength in that instead of division and the just absolute tragedy of this like final desperate effort to bring the people in his life together and for that to be his legacy after Jaehaerys's reign and Viserys's reign largely defined by peace like this debilitating sadness that he knew that the peace was not maintained inside his own house and he keeps like muttering these little things throughout the episode about how he's sorry how he needs to fix it it's just so heart-wrenching and sad. Yeah I mean it's also I think sometimes when you're in the in the throes of the episode and you're seeing Helena and and Aegon sitting there and you're just like, this is just so twisted. It's hard to like kind of negotiate the fact that like, so this is entirely because Rhaenyra and Harwin were together off screen, essentially, which is, you know, like this, this romance that birthed these kids that have like essentially become the sticking point for the peaceful succession of this family. I don't know. And it's part of it. It's part of it, but that yeah. was already it was already in the mix. Like yeah. before Harwin Strong, Otto and more significantly his brother Hobart were like, yeah. "There's They're a making the play. Boy, there's a boy day. king now. Yeah. Like yes. we named a girl because we were desperate and didn't want yes. Damon, but there's a boy in the mix now. So that was already, I think, in the but water. in a world where almost everyone right. can do pretty much anything they want, she can't have kids by this guy." You know, and the, and then and, and or at least those kids can't be 
in line for succession, right? I will say, like, I th- we, we've talked a little bit about this idea that they cast House Valarian as, um, you know, it's a black house, it's a mixed race house, and and how interesting that is in this very episode when Veyman is like, these kids who look nothing like me cannot have my... House Valarian has stood proud for eons mm-hmm. and you're going to put these kids right. like yeah. all you know on our throne and um i think it's really cleverly underlines this idea of now just extrapolate that out to like these these kids who don't look they are as targaryen as their uncles as uncle aemon and uncle aegon but they don't look it yeah. and that's that's a big issue for for a house that is so proud of its silvery blondness that considers itself gods among men. Now, of course, it's the high towers who are pushing this issue and that is they're pushing it to, you know, help feed their own ambition. But um I don't know, I think the question of bloodlines, uh, you know, it's literally the opening credits of the show. I sure. think I think it's not quite the same as some of the other you can do whatever you want. Yeah. No, I, I think I mean it know? more almost in like the you know the the unfairness of 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 the world that Rhaenyra finds herself in, and that this guy that she's she's sort of hooked up with has become this albatross that she's carrying around. Whereas, pretty much, I mean, Aegon made me married to his sister, but he's allowed to he's allowed to do whatever he wants, and people cover it up. And you know, obviously, there's there's a lot of like gender inequality going on in in this era of of the story, and and in in most of Game of Thrones. But it, I, I found cool. it fascinating. It's, I think though that was at the heart of the Alicent Rhaenyra showdown last week too, right? Like that idea that Alicent wields at Rhaenyra that like she can do what she wants and Alicent's mm-hmm. never felt like she could. So I think right. that that is a central tension across these character lines like and relationships. And Chris, I know you've been throughout the, the last few weeks very like, very devoted to this idea. Like couldn't Rhaenyra just say, yeah, you're, yeah. Guess what? You're like, all what right. are you going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> there are three strong boys. Thanks for noticing. And let's move forward. And I think like, okay, a couple things are true. Uh, bastards can rise high in the realm. We've seen that across another television show that we've all watched together. There are plenty of examples of that. House Baratheon itself like traces its roots to Oris Baratheon, Aegon the Conqueror's bastard half-brother. Plenty of people who are currently aligned with Rhaenyra know they know this to be true and they're they have accepted it and decided to move forward with her including Corliss right like he's not like what are you talking about he says history remembers names so people can make their individual choice there i don't think it's that it's that like joe was just noting the push from the high towers and even more so like a lot of what otto said to alicent Part of it was gaslighting and manipulation, but part of it was true, was the realm, and this was what Renice said to Rhaenyra in episode two, like the realm at large. There would be people across the realm who would not be ready for Rhaenyra, who would not want it. And there would be people across the realm who would be ready to support Aegon. And so this, an acknowledgement of her her children's parentage is in, it's a delegitimization of their claim. It weakens their claim and thus it weakens hers. Like think of the moment when Viserys said, go like sure up your line, sure up your succession. It would cost her their biggest and most important ally in House Valarian. Obviously that's complicated already. It, we talked about the faith of the seven earlier. It would risk inciting the faith. Yeah. Like think about in Game of Thrones, every time we're walking through the streets of King's Landing and adherence to the faith are shouting about the abominations yeah. of... Of, of incest, but also bastardry, right? So it would give Alicent and the Greens a leg Everything up that they needed. If she just was like- opening for- Get off my back for about more. this. Yeah. 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 There, there's this line um, in the book around this time about baby Viserys. Yeah. Uh, and about how his dragon never hatched and that the Greens use this as sort of uh, implication. Even though Viserys is like, baby Viserys, Rhaenyra and Damon's kid- is very obviously a Targaryen, very blonde baby, right? All that sort of stuff. But the fact that his dragon egg never hatched, like the high towers, the greens, will use sort of any excuse to undermine. And so it's like they'll 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 attack it from both ends. And one of the ends that they'll attack it from is these Targaryens aren't Targaryen enough. I think that's why it's so important that we open with Jace struggling over learning High Valyrian. You know what I mean? It's just like is that how these Targaryen- guys just aren't ready for prime time. 
Yeah. Um, I feel like, as usual, it's difficult to ask about what comes next because we have some sense of what comes next if we read the books. So we can just leave it there. I feel like this show is certainly revving up for an exciting last two episodes. We'll be back with you on Sunday night, next Sunday night, to talk about episode nine, the penultimate episode of the first season. Mallory and Joanna will be with you on Tuesday for a deep dive on this episode and 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 all the episodes uh, on House of R on Ringerverse. Andy and I will hit it. We were produced as usual by Steve Allman. Any closing thoughts? One quick thing I want to say for our beloved pal, Andy Greenwald, who is struggling oh, with the show, and I love him and I respect his, his uh, struggle. Um, he was asking for relatable content. Here's my favorite, most relatable content moment from this episode. Rhaenyra naming her kid Aegon, which in the books, which in the book really pissed Allison off. Like that is, that is actually genuinely relatable content. I think I've heard of families being like, uh, you stole my baby name, you know? The Viserys sort of walk to the throne is very much Andy completing a 5K. You know, like, it's just <laughs> like, it's like what he <laughs> Um, Thanks so much for doing this with me. I can't wait to talk to you about, about next week. So we'll see you then. 